All right, so we're going to do an internal medicine update. And the first thing I want to do is shout out to a listener, Chris King, a hospitalist in Scottsdale, Arizona. He sent me an email actually a while back. I think this is from May of 2016. But one thing I love about my listeners is that they listen very, very closely, which is something you just have to do when you're talking medicine. And he caught me, Chris King. Um, good job. You noticed in my iron deficiency anemia lecture that I misspoke about RDW. I don't know what I was thinking. I listened back to that and I was going pretty fast. I think I said this in under a second, but I said the RDW in iron deficiency anemia is decreased, which is crazy. It's increased. The RDW is the red blood cell distribution width. And basically it tells you is there a variation in the size of the red blood cells that is on the smear or is there no variation? And when you're dealing with deficiencies of vitamin or minerals, in this case I was talking about iron, but actually with folate, vitamin B12 and iron, there often is an increase in the RDW, meaning there's an increase in the distribution of sizes of the red blood cells that you will see. And while RDW is not specific enough to give you a diagnosis of the type of anemia that you're looking at, nevertheless, it can be just one of those pieces of information that you put together. But it is not decreased in iron deficiency anemia. It is often increased, sometimes normal. And actually, I'm not aware of a condition where an RDW is less than normal. So any bright listeners out there that are really into hematology, if there is a hematologic condition that causes a low RDW, let me know what that is, but I'm not aware that one exists. Anyway, if I remember the podcast, I was saying that serum iron can be low and serum ferritin can be low and MCV can be low, and I just threw in RDW like an idiot. And as Abe Lincoln once said, podcasts can be misleading. Or... No, I shouldn't even joke about misleading you even further. Hey, it's okay to make mistakes, just don't date them, right? That should be the rule. Okay, so while moving away from my mistakes, I want to stick with the theme for a little bit regarding things that relate to past lectures. And there's a study that came out in the May 2017, the American Journal of Medicine, and this study came out of the folks from the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Division at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And the title of it is Prognostic Importance of Low Admission Serum Creatinine Concentration for Mortality in Hospitalized Patients. And this was an interesting study to me. I think I said in my muscle lectures that sarcopenia, really low muscle, I think is one of the most underappreciated reasons for both hospitalization and mortality as far as falls and skin breakdown and fractures and surviving all kinds of medical problems and traumas. And what this study showed is that a low creatinine value, so we often get worried about high creatinine values, and we should, and it looks like there's a J-curve, so if you're in renal failure and have a high creatinine value, obviously not good for mortality and morbidity, but the same now can be said for a low creatinine value where it is an independently associated factor with an increased mortality in hospitalized patients and for mortality after discharge. 
I think this study is more proof that exercising an hour a day keeps you from being dead 24 hours a day. That wasn't necessarily the conclusion of the authors, but in our day-to-day practice, we're using the serum creatinine value to estimate GFR, right? The glomerular filtration rate. And really, we sometimes forget that creatinine is also a surrogate marker for muscle mass. And therefore, patients who have really low muscle mass are well known to often have a low serum creatinine value. If you work in medicine long enough, you're going to see cases of this where I have seen a few cases now where people have a creatinine less than one and require dialysis. I had a lupus patient with that not too long ago. So what I mean is that there are people that have such low muscle mass that the creatinine does not at all have an influence on what their real GFR is. And therefore, the creatinine can be very misleading in those situations because the patient could be in total renal failure, need dialysis, and yet their creatinine is low, so it's not tipping you off that this patient is in renal failure and having a lot of problems from it. And therefore, you might start attributing the electrolyte problems and the fluid balance problems to other causes, but they're in total renal failure. So that's not what this article is about. But I was just trying to make the point that low muscle mass can be associated with a low creatinine value and that there can be cases of total renal failure with low creatinine values. But the point of this article was to show that there is an independent association with hospital mortality with having a very low creatinine. So in this situation, what they were defining that as is a creatinine value less than 0.4. This is for both men and women, and actually a year out from hospitalization, the mortality was still higher in these folks. So let's step back for a second. With body mass index, when you're talking BMI, when it's very low, it often does reflect a poor nutritional status. The problem with BMI in hospitals, and I think most of you understand this out there, is that one of its big limitations, both when it's low, normal, or high, is that it's often inaccurate. And the reason it's inaccurate is because, one, we really almost never check someone's height. When's the last time you've seen a nurse, or a doctor for that matter, checking someone's height with a tape measure, right? It happens in clinics all the time, but as far as hospitals, I can't remember the last time I've seen that done. And then sometimes people don't have a way to measure themselves at home. And then other times we're using things like bed scales, which are notoriously inaccurate. And then a lot of times patients just tell us the wrong weight because they're embarrassed about it. So sometimes I'm going to the nursing station and I'm trying to calculate a med. I'm like, this person that apparently has a BMI of 28 but can't fit into our CT scanner because they clearly are too large to do so, I don't think we have the right weight on this person. And then I'm looking at the electronic health record and magically the BMI changes from 28 to 54 in a matter of an hour. And I don't think it's because the lunch had that many calories. Okay, so not only is BMI notoriously inaccurate in our measurements, the problem is when you have, let's say, a low BMI 
it's really hard to discriminate is that because of very low lean fat or low body mass or not enough fluid and you're very dehydrated. And it goes the other way too with a high BMI. In fact, I know this very personally because when I was getting my insurance exam for life insurance, the insurance company was concerned about my BMI that was a little bit above 30, but I really don't have much fat. And the thing is, is that bodybuilders will often have a BMI above 30 and they are not obese. As we all know, muscle weighs a lot more than fat and so you can have a fairly trim waistline and still have a high BMI and not be obese. I know that's not the majority of people we see with high BMIs, but it definitely exists out there. Anyway, this study, I think it shows that one, that creatinine level is probably a better surrogate marker for low muscle mass than BMI. And two, if you do have a very low creatinine level, in this case we're defining it as 0.4 or less, it's actually a bad sign both for inpatient hospital mortality but also your death rate over the next year. So that was interesting. I don't think everybody has to become a bodybuilder, although, hey, if you can bring a six-pack and two guns to work and not get fired, pretty awesome. Eh, sorry if that made you cringe more than smile, but hey, you know what makes me smile? Same thing that makes you smile, our facial muscles. <laughs> okay, so a few other articles that I've been hanging on to to update some of the past lectures. Remember we were talking about in the blood lecture whether the length of storage of red blood cells could affect your outcomes, meaning we keep blood around in blood banks for 42 days, but what we do know is that over the time of storage, there's various physiologic changes that happen to the red blood cells. So the result is that some have wondered, are you better off getting blood that has been in the blood bank for only three days compared to getting blood that has been in the blood bank for 40 days. I mean, do the red blood cells still go through the capillaries as well, or are they more prone to having problems several weeks out? So there was a study that came out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Now, this, you know, was an observational study, so it does have its limitations, but Nevertheless, this was in February 21st, 2017. It was the length of storage of red blood cells and patient survival after transfusion. So what this observational study did was make us a bit more reassured. And it said there really is no association between the length of storage of transfused red blood cells and patient mortality. So it looks like as of now, we're okay keeping those red blood cells stored for up to 42 days and we don't have to really worry too much about how old that blood is. But at the moment, the studies on this, there is some conflicting data where there have been times where there's been detriment to older blood, but there's also been a study where they showed some detriment to using too fresh blood. So I don't know what the right answer is. I think this is one of those topics in medicine that no matter which study you decide to believe in, you're always wrong. But that's life. There's not a whole lot of absolute truths, other than the saying that we shouldn't use laxatives and sleeping pills in the same night, right? That's probably an absolute truth.
Nevertheless, this study, I think, was reassuring that whatever the blood bank's giving us, if they're doing a good job with their storage, we don't really have to be all that concerned about the length of storage. All right, and last but not least, a topic or study that really doesn't relate to anything that I think I've talked about in the past, but I thought was extremely interesting and important in this past year. This was actually from the New England Journal Medicine in 2016, and it was a randomized trial of long-term oxygen for COPD with moderate desaturation. So in this study, they looked at stable COPD patients, but ones that have significant disease enough where they are having moderate oxygen desaturations. And what they were looking at is does supplementing oxygen for the long term help? Meaning does prescribing oxygen therapy actually reduce mortality or reduce hospitalization? And clearly, using oxygen is very expensive, as we would expect with all those tanks and nasocannulas out there. It actually was more than a $2 billion expense for Medicare in 2011 alone. And then, a lot of the times, patients hate oxygen. Some really want it, so there's really a diversity of opinions out there from patients. Some are like, give me oxygen, some that don't even need it. And then others that desaturate to like, 90%, 89% that really don't want home oxygen and sometimes caregivers get upset with that patient and feel like they need to be using it and that the refusal is a bad thing. So I'm not sure this study totally applies to hospitalized patients, but anyway, in those with stable COPD that tend to dip down whether at rest or with exercise, it turns out that it probably is not all that important to provide supplemental oxygen if they're just dipping down to like 89%. So what do I mean by that? Well, the data in this data set didn't show that supplemental oxygen would affect time of death, your first hospitalization, rate of all hospitalizations for that matter, rate of COPD exacerbations, didn't really change measurement, and quality of life, depression, anxiety, or functional status. And the guy who wrote the ACP Journal Club review of this was a guy named Simon O'Connor, who apparently lives in New South Wales, Australia. Sounds nice. I don't know if it is nice there. But anyway, I liked his first quote of his commentary, which is, it may be surprising that evidence to support the use of supplemental oxygen is so thin. And isn't that so much of what we do? We often just start doing things for years and years and decades and decades, but we don't have great evidence. And so he says that the message is becoming clear that supplemental oxygen treats low oxygen levels, not breathlessness. And then he also points out, which is something I think just about every care provider knows at this point, which is that patients are inextricably linking in their minds oxygen levels with breathlessness. Now, these pulse ox saturation devices you can now get at a store or amazon.com for like $20. And so people are using them at home and if their oxygen levels dip, they're coming to the ER or the doctor's office and saying, 
that they're short of breath. And you ask them, are you actually short of breath? No, 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 but my oxygen level dropped. And actually, when I'm rounding in the hospital, this happens all the time. I'll ask my, one of my first questions if someone's there with some sort of lung issue is, are you feeling short of breath today? And they'll be like, yes, my oxygen level was 85%. And then I will re-ask and say, no, I understand that's what you were just told by the CNA or the nurse or another doctor, but are you more short of breath today? Well, no, no, I'm not. So while I'm trying to get their subjective opinion as to whether or not they feel short of breath, they're usually, or very often at least, giving me the objective data point, which I already knew before I walked in the room because I looked at their vital signs. And particularly if you practice where I do, which is in Colorado, you just notice that a lot of people without a whole lot of clinically significant lung disease and non-smokers as they age and are having what would be normal or expected decreases in a lot of measures on the pulmonary function test. We don't necessarily do PFTs, but you just notice that as you lose some of that lung functioning over time, there's a lot of people that have hypoxia by pulse oximetry, but don't feel it. And as far as I can tell, are not having any major clinical consequences of it and don't really need oxygen. And probably that leash effect of that nasal cannula and having to carry around a tank and therefore not doing as much activity as you normally would do or too embarrassed to go out and all the things that go along with that. Wrong thing to do, it looks like at this point. Don't give those people oxygen or make them feel bad for not using oxygen. So anyway, we'll see how much this changes things, not only in terms of coverage for home oxygen, but also in prescribing habits. I suspect it will take a while because when we have habits in medicine, they're too much fun to stop doing, even if the data says otherwise. And by no means is this saying that we shouldn't be using oxygen with COPD patients. This really was just looking at a group of patients with oxygen saturations in the 89 to 93% category. So for that group of patients that are not having severe resting desaturations that in this article would be 88% or less, or for patients that have more than 80% oxygen saturation with exercise induced desaturation. So this doesn't apply to the people that are dropping into the 70s. But nevertheless, those with a Resting oxygen saturation, 89 to 93%. Unless there's another reason to do it, an acute illness, a truly subjective feeling of air hunger and shortness of breath, it turns out that just treating a pulse oximetry oxygen saturation number for the majority of those patients really doesn't look like we're doing anything than treating a number. So it is good that we now have some scientific evidence behind this, and this was in the form of a randomized controlled trial. I realized that constipated people don't give a crap and that there will be a certain population of physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs that are not going to always accept that moderate desaturations are not that important in regards to needing oxygen therapy. There may be something very important going on with that patient, 
but at least in the stable COPD population, it doesn't look like those people need oxygen therapy. All right, so you've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.